Royal London's Jamie Jenkins isn't just an expert on UK pensions. He knows his way around various international systems too, including China, India and Australia. It was great to get his thoughts on where we're at in the UK just now and what we might learn from abroad. Can I hear birds in the background? You can. So I'm at home and there is a bird feeder outside which oh, attracts nice. a lot of birds. There's not much I can do about that. I don't no, have... no, no, it's fine. I like it. So, so there wasn't there wasn't a complaint or a criticism. It was just like, oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah, and there's no window open, but you, they're just in such close proximity. If we're lucky, then we'll hear anything from a woodpecker to even a buzzard. We get all sorts in the garden at the moment. It's uh, quite remarkable. We've got a couple of woodpeckers regularly visiting ours at the moment, fighting off the squirrels, who are yeah, indeed determined little bastards. My wife has procured squirrel-proof feeders, which amazingly work really well. So they're basically the weight of either a squirrel or any kind of heavy, heavy bird is such that when they land on it, it pulls shut. <laughs> It's um, endlessly has a fun watching that happen. Yeah, watching the squirrel spend hours trying to figure it out <laughs> and just cannot cannot get its head around it. So, but it, what it has discovered is if you kind of bash the thing hard enough, a few of them fall out and it can find them on the ground. Yeah, persistent little buggers, aren't they? Mm. So, how long have you been at Royal London now? A year and a half. Started in January twenty one. Before that, it, it was standard life mostly. Before that, was there a break in between? Bit of a break. Did three decades at standard life. Worked in five different decades, the 80s, 90s, noughties, and... 2010s. 10s, yeah, and the very early part of the 20s. Wow. So, um, yeah, spanned spanned quite a career. So, and, I, I mean, um, I'm intrigued now, because I joined Norwich Union, as it was then, in 1986, but I only spent eight years at them, so nothing like your track record with Standard Life. But w- what year did you join Standard? 1989, Okay, yeah. as, a, as a young lad. So, yeah, um, had a very interesting time there. Spent a lot of time working in operations initially, so customer service, customer operations, and corporate pensions ultimately, and then did a bit of marketing, a bit of product development, and then ultimately moved on to policy probably about 10 years ago now, started getting into the spokesperson role, public affairs, and what have you. The pandemic came along just about exactly when I left Standard Life. It doesn't escape my amusement that I was not long back from China. <laughs> it's and, on uh, you, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty convinced I'm not personally. I would hate to think I was, but... Uh, yeah, but came back from uh, my last kind of international trip in January twenty one, and left in in March twenty one. So I, w- sorry, I wanted twenty twenty. Sorry, I wanted to come on to the international stuff, but just briefly, I was I was on a holiday in Italy in February twenty twenty with one of my kids we were at the airport at Venice Airport. And he was looking at his phone and all these news reports breaking, and he was going, Dad. We're here, aren't we? This is <laughs> this is us because, like, you know, Italy was really early on in the, you know, the all terrible problems in northern Italy, so near Venice, you know, just as we were there, but and we were lucky we got out okay. Yeah, Italy. I mean, Italy was really 
really badly hit in the very early stages. And of course, at that point, you've got to remember there was no such thing as a vaccine, and yeah. um, you know, people were absolutely exposed to the to the worst of it. Terrible, terrible times. But um, it's funny, you know, I, I do look back on that and my week that I was there in January 2020, as it was just before the pandemic really took hold. And there was on the international news that I saw in my hotel story number seven or something was a brief clip of the fact that there was this unknown virus spreading in Wuhan and a couple of people had died and they weren't quite sure it was um, you know kind of flu-like in nature and seemed to be some kind of respiratory problem and I remember asking somebody while I was there who quickly dismissed it and said well we see that sort of thing all the time but it comes and goes and They'll shut it down, and, and and that was the end of the conversation. And of course, a couple of months later, it was all over the world. And where, whereabouts in China were you at that point? It was in Beijing, right. and there was a story circulating at the time that it was possibly being transmitted on the trains between Beijing and and Wuhan, and but there was no foundation to it particularly, other than the fact they'd started to find cases elsewhere um, quite quickly afterwards. But um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah, we believe Scottish people are the vectors for this. So um, what were you doing in Beijing? At the time we had, and Standard Life still does have a joint venture in China. And I had been over several times over the years actually working on the development of the pensions product over there. So, you know, working with regulators and government, talking to them about what we had been doing in the UK and automatic enrolment mm-hmm. particularly and how we'd established default funds and so on and so forth. So it was it was primarily around that. That was an ongoing kind of engagement. So were they looking at introducing an auto-enrolment system there? Yeah, China has got some basic pension elements in place, but they don't quite have automatic enrolment. It's difficult to describe some kind of hybrid arrangement, but they do have something in place, certainly with the bigger industries and the bigger companies. But it's not universal in quite the way that it is in the UK. And they were keen to explore how best to do that. And it all really fits within China's overall kind of development program, as they can rightly claim for all its faults, perhaps, that China has managed to bring an awful lot of people out of poverty Yes. And part of that is is working through how they do that in retirement as well and how they prepare people, particularly in, in rural areas where people are less kind of touched by the kind of government support that's available to others in cities. So and, and do they the have a robust trust and legal framework? You know, that whole business about I'm going to hand over my savings now, a slice of my income now, and you, you're going to invest it for me and give it back to me in 20 or 30 years' time. You need the right architecture to make that happen in a way that everyone's comfortable with. That's pretty similar, although think more sort of industry-wide trust arrangements. It's more akin to that than, you know, the sort of small board of trustees and a lot more government intervention, as you would imagine. But but very similar in nature. You put your money in and you get something back at the end. What I would say is that it was far less, certainly when I was there, far less kind of equity orientated and more sort of 
fixed interest type investments. So there was still a way to go in terms of getting equity type returns for people. And it, it's presumably it's all DC. I mean, there's no guarantees involved? Not really. There are some inherent guarantees in some of the industry schemes, but moreover, it's a move towards a DC system more akin to, to what we've got in the UK. So that was the journey they were on. It's quite slow, but they they were driving it quite hard when when I left, certainly. My knowledge is a little bit out of date now. Probably moved on somewhat. I think um, if I come on to it, Tom, I mean, I, I was lucky enough in that later period in my previous employment where I did a couple of years on the international side and, you know, got to visit uh, places like India, Japan, Malaysia, in the States, China, and also Australia several times. And you've got everything in that mix from systems that are very underdeveloped and really looking for direction from the rest of the world as to how best to do things, perhaps particularly in India and to some extent China. But when you look at the systems in, you know, Malaysia and Japan, they're pretty developed and they they're, you know, they have a more of an understanding of their aging population. Australia is probably of most interest, I suppose, because it's most similar to, to ours here in the UK, you know, predominantly a DC system relatively mature you know 30 to 40 years old for most people you know that that's been the the sort of workplace pension that's been in place but when I say that it comes with a caveat it's mature in the sense of its policy development and where it's got to now but you really still don't have anybody in Australia who's saved for 40 years at a very adequate rate you know they started at about three percent employer contribution they're now at I think as of the first of this month, they've moved to 10.5% on a journey to 12. So they're still on a journey there. And as I say, most people have quite a patchy career of, of saving at various rates over the decades, which is now only reaching a kind of the stage where it's near adequate. So they've still got a maturity to go in terms of people's actual savings outcomes, if you like. People there, on average, I think, coming to retirement with something in the region of 250,000 Australian dollars, 130,000 UK pounds, which is good. And it's a lot better than here in the UK for the general population as an average, much better. But it's still a way off what I think most Australians will feel they need. How, in, good, is in these, how good is the state pension over there? It's pretty generous. So, I mean, if you imagine ours in the UK is what, about a third of average earnings about nine and a half thousand pounds a year something of that order in Australia their age pension as they call it is probably closer to certainly half for many people up to about two-thirds for some it is means tested that's the important caveat so and it's means tested to the point that if you have oodles of money in retirement you would get nothing uh, as an age pension. And that's problematic because it creates a tension. Well, it's an um, incentive to impoverish yourself. It is. So if you, if you have somebody who does reach retirement with you know 50,000 Australian dollars, that's not going to last them in retirement, but it may impact what they get from the age pension. Right. It's a pretty good incentive to spend it all and then rely on the age pension. So so does our new, our new pensions minister keeps referencing Australia <laughs> and how, you know, if you, if you want to know where I think UK pension policy 
policy should go. Look at Australia. Is I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's kind of essentially the message we get from him quite frequently. So I think that means testing things really interesting. Do the Australians recognise that that is that is a flaw in their system? Do they feel like they're so? Oh yeah, we got to fix that, or do they just say, mm, yeah, but we can live with it. It's okay. Nothing's perfect. I think they're living with it for now. I mean, it's very hard to undo. If you imagine how intertwined it is with with people's expectations. It's a bit like they've, they've broadly got a, a TEE system, so you know, taxed up front but exempt while they're saving and exempt when they take their money, which is unusual. One of mm-hmm. only a couple of countries in the world, I believe, that, that operates that way. Now, again, I don't think they would choose it if they were designing that from scratch because it does, again, there's no inhibition, if you like, for people to spend down their money in retirement. But, you, you know, as I say, those things are very hard to unwind, so you kind of have to accept what, what you've got, at least for now, until people are, are better saved. And I think, so at the moment, you know, the plan is to think to stick with what they've got and try and work with it. And they're wrestling like we are with how they orientate people's thinking around an income in retirement rather than cash sums. And... I don't think any country in the world has really solved this. If you have a DC system where you save in and you take whatever you get at the end and you can spend it all as you please or short of compulsory annuitization, it's pretty hard to get people thinking about how they secure a long-term income when they have all sorts of other priorities and indeed they have no idea how long they're going to live and and, and again add to that if um, if the kind of rates that they get on an annuity or annuity equivalent product in another country are poor, then it's a bit of a disincentive to do that. So they've been looking to us in Australia to say, you know, how do you do retirement in the UK? And you know, what, what have you done with the pension freedoms? How are you getting people to think about income? We've had some pretty big strides in that area, but I wouldn't say we've solved it, not by any stretch. Hell no. Uh, and I find it interesting that we spend upwards of £100 billion a year on our state pension and as you've alluded to, it's it's not an overly generous relative to Australia. It makes up about 50% of a single person's retirement income on average uh, and mm-hmm. about a third of a couple's retirement income on average. But, you know, no one would argue that our state pe- – I mean, by international comparison, our state pension is pretty poor and yet is still consuming a pretty st- big slice of state expenditure. Uh, and I, I'm kind of interested – Guy Oppelman's been talking again recently about, you know, our previous pensions minister was talking about pension credit and, you know, ways of delivering the money more efficiently. And I feel, I feel like there's some unfinished business there, particularly in terms of how we serve the the lower wealth deciles, you know, the poorer end of society and how how the state props them up. We don't, I, I don't think we're very good at that. And then, as you've alluded to, you know, when you get onto pension freedoms, um, there's been this massive move away from guaranteed incomes. I think the pendulum swung a bit too far, and that a mechanism that progressively locked in more and more secure income as people got older has has a lot to recommend it. But at the moment, we've got trapped in this narrative of, well, it's your, it's it's, it's a savings plan. It's a pot of money, and you can just do what you like with it in retirement. And I think you know the, the recklessness around the death benefit tax treatment as well is 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 just feeding that problem. I think you're probably right. They introduced in Australia fairly recently what they call a retirement income covenant, which was mm. it kind of drew short of a compulsory annuitization or any element of compulsory annuitization in people's plans. But what it did do was introduce schemes have to demonstrate that they have an income-orientated strategy available to and promoted for members. 
that's broadly what it what it says. It was somewhat watered down from the original proposals, but it's a it's a kind of move in in that direction. I mean, this is a it's a worldwide kind of problem, and and it centres in some really big uncertainties. You don't know what your expenses are going to be in retirement, and you don't know how long you're going to live. And in the absence of knowing those two things, it's very very difficult for somebody to effectively take the amount of money they have and divide it up accordingly the best that people can do is try and withdraw if you like money in a in a sustainable way if they want to try and make it last so it's it, it's a hard problem which is what i've always what i always loved about annuities what i still love about annuities is they're a really efficient mechanism for allocating the capital and the income where it's needed and redistributing that capital across to those people who live longer at the expense of those who die young, but hey, it's okay because they're dead, you know. And I think that, to me, that still has a lot of merit. But I also recognise people want some element of control and ownership and flexibility within that. So you get into a kind of mix and match territory. You, you do, and, and and listen, I think that there is something instructive in looking at those who reach retirement now in the UK with guaranteed annuity rates they're few and far between but there are a number of legacy arrangements in place where people still have a very valuable guaranteed annuity rate it might be as high as seven eight nine percent something of that order and and most of those people to my knowledge do exercise that right because they realize once it's explained to them just how valuable it is i mean there are some people who who still cash it in nonetheless but a lot of i mean certainly a lot more people are annuitizing in that position than are through choice. And it does tell you something, that is there a point at which annuity rates, you know, people would actually feel that they are an attractive thing to do, even as an underpin to, you know, taking income in other ways. But we're, we're, we're certainly, you know, we're a long way off that in terms of the attractiveness of annuity rates. Perhaps our inflationary environment will help. Well, I think, I think we might be testing that quite soon, given that someone in their 70s could now be looking at an annuity rate in excess of 8% a year level you know which is you know so there's a trade-off you're making there but uh, that's starting to look like quite an attractive number relative to to the risk of staying invested in the markets particularly if you're not putting all your money into an annuity let's just buy a slice of guaranteed income and at that rate that's starting to look like quite a good deal it's a different story when you get up into your late 70s and your 80s compared to when you're in your 60s yeah, so no, that's part uh, of the equation as well. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we'll see annuities appearing more readily in, in later life when there is a bit more certainty about the number of years you still have to provide income. Uh, and I was also interested, just coming back to your, your thoughts around international pensions, we've wrestled with this problem that we now enter the workforce in our early 20s, typically sort of around 20, give or take a couple of years. We expect to leave the workforce sometime around our mid-60s, give or take, and we then expect typically to live for another 20 years or so. And at the moment, the amount that we're saving over that earnings period in between, I mean, arguably it's 8%, some people it's a bit more, some people it's a bit less, but we're struggling to join the dots a bit here in terms of building up an adequate sized pot to cover that last 20 years or so, or maybe 30 years, or maybe if you're lucky, even 40 years of life post-working period. And... I guess I'm just interested in what you've seen. You know, you talked about Australia getting up to what was it, ten and a half percent now, but they know they need they, they were aiming to go higher. And I just the other thing I was interested to throw into the mix on this was that paper that came out from from Hargreaves Lansdowne this week, which is, was essentially saying, look, you know, don't rush too fast towards 
12% because you'll actually undermine the financial resilience of lower income households if you do that. So so just just be careful how you proceed through all of this. Don't turn the dial up too hard and too fast and too, too forcefully for, for lower income households. But then you look at DB funding rates. Oh, I think 25 to 30% is what you need to pay mm. in if you want to guarantee a good level of income. So, so just talk a bit about all of that. Yeah, indeed. I mean, it's, it's funny because we're in a position now where you know, we've got inflation almost hitting double figures, may well hit double figures before the year's out, may well be sustained for, you know, a year or two. Nobody nobody can be quite sure. We're in a very, very difficult position right now for many families simply making ends meet and, and paying for daily expenses. And we can't ignore that by any stretch. It would be folly for anybody to go out and suggest that people should be paying more into pensions in the current climate. However, I think it's also instructive to look at what's happening at the moment and think, imagine we had, let's say, a third or close to a third of our population no longer working in that later life period with insufficient funds to get by day to day because they're, they're undersaved through, through pension. And think, how difficult would that problem be to solve compared to the one that we face today. Today's problem's hard enough, but hopefully short-lived, and, and there are levers we can pull through interest rates and the like to try and steady that ship and get inflation back under control. But having an undersaved population in retirement could lead to the same problem. People don't have enough money to get by, but it's a very difficult problem to solve, short of them being supplemented by the state, which, of course, we all know has, you know, grave economic consequences, if you like. So I think it's instructive to look at what's happening now and think about what we need to do in the future. But it would be, as I say, it would be crazy to suggest that people should now, you know, the next thing they should do is is put any additional money into pension. But what we should do is have a plan. And we still lack a plan, even really to implement the recommendations from the 2017 review, lowering the age from 22 to 18 Mm -hmm. and Removing the lower earnings limit, which has a big impact on what's going in for the lowest earnings. For lower earners, yeah, absolutely. So having a plan, even if it is subject to economic indicators, you know, subject to getting inflation down, for example, would seem like a very sensible thing to do. You can almost have a plan that says over a period of X number of years, this is how we'll do it, we'll phase it in, we'll make these changes, we'll agree on them. But we'll only do that subject to the economy being, you know, context being suitable for us to to implement that will give employers good warning will give employees good warning and that that sort of plan to me would be very effective it's not dissimilar really to what they've done in australia they've been moving from nine to twelve percent contribution rates for several years they still plan to get there by 2025 they will stall that accordingly they're not going to sort of press on with rate increases in the middle of a crisis and and there have been several occasions where they've, they've pushed that back for that very reason. But they've still had a plan, a plan that they can come back to each time there is an opportunity to, to move things on. And has that, has that plan survived changes of government? And you know, have they managed to maintain a consensus through all of that? Yeah, they have. And they've had no shortage of political changes in Australia, just as we have in the UK over the last seven or eight years with a number of different prime ministers. So 
and, and switches in government, it, it's absolutely held strong throughout that. There's been a, an ongoing commitment. The timing may have changed. And what was it? What was the glue that held that together? How was it they managed to maintain that consensus there? Because we had, you know, you go back to Adair Turner, mid-2000s, 2005, 2006, legislation, 2008. We had a consensus. Since then, not so much. What have they done? Yeah, I don't think it's that dissimilar to what we did here through the Turner Commission, which is, firstly, you've got political consensus, but secondly, you've got consensus with the trade unions, with the different workforce sectors, and so on. And don't get me wrong, there's been some pain in Australia over the years where, in some cases, in the earlier stages of the Australian system, the super system in Australia, the, the, there was wage bargaining, if you like, where it was agreed that certain amounts of increase that would have been fed through to different sectors and different industries were held back in favour of pension or superannuation contributions. And that would be similar here. We might not agree it quite as explicitly, given the UK system's a little bit different. Mm. But equally, implicitly, you might say, look, we're willing to forego a small degree of wage growth in a year when wage growth is good in favour of increasing pension contributions. And that's the obvious way of doing it. It's the way, really, that auto-enrolment works for individuals as well. They give up some of their income and put it towards pension. It's simply agreeing that ahead of time. And we have plenty of organisations that represent employers in the UK with whom we, uh, the government more accurately, and the Turner Commission engaged during its programme a decade or so ago, and we could do again, and I expect we will do again. I think that, to come back to one of your earlier points, though, Tom, we do face a struggle with, you know, for, for the lowest paid people, there is a question mark about whether more money into pension is the right thing for them to yeah. do. And it may be that we need to have a system that makes some allowance for that. So, for example, if somebody is genuinely living on a sort of minimum or living wage as they approach retirement, then their ability to actually manage with a state pension and a small amount of savings may be greater than than other people who are paid more. And that's not to say, therefore, they're fine. That's not my point at all. But what you might say is it's not the next biggest priority for them if you know to have a better lifestyle than that in retirement they have to forgo an awful lot of Mm. the luxuries in life as they work and really struggle through then you might question whether we've got that trade-off quite right yeah agreed yeah, but then look how hard it was for Steve Webb to get through state pension reforms in whenever it was, 2012. He had a real battle with the Treasury at the time, and, and, it, and he got it through. And I think it's not perfect, but it's better than it was, and it was simpler and tidier. I was struck watching a oh, – I should get their name wrong now. I think it's the Chartered Institute of Taxation. We're working with the Institute for Fiscal Studies – and there was a, an excellent panel discussion on pension tax reform, which I watched over the weekend because that's that's the kind of fun thing you do when the sun's shining. Mm. And uh, Carl Emerson was speaking at it, and Charlotte Clark, ex ex senior civil servant, and they were talking in that about the difficulty of just 
getting any kind of change through on pensions because there's so much baked into the system already. There's so much inertia there. There's so much, I mean, in the best possible way, the vested interest, you know, because anytime you make a change, someone loses out and then you upset people and so it's really hard. So, you know, the default setting by far the strongest is just to keep muddling along. And we occasionally get changes like Steve Webb did with the state pension. But the kind of changes we're talking about here, maybe making the state pension a bit more generous for lower earners, but maybe not auto-enrolling them or... You know, that kind of stuff is so hard to do. It is so hard to do. Interestingly, though, think about where we are now. We've got state pension, little under £10,000. We've got triple lock, which if it is honoured, as so far it appears that it will be, and we take the rate of inflation in September of this year, it could well be 10% plus. And that could be a very significant hike for pensioners on the state pension, along with a number of other benefits, of course, that could be uprated by inflation as well. And to be honest, it's one of the few occasions where you can see quite a distinct benefit from the triple lock in uprating the real level of state pension in real terms, if you like, mm. relative to you know to other things. I suspect we're not going to see earnings figures, anything like that come September and if we do we've probably got a bigger problem around embedding inflation more generally but if that sort of ratcheting up effect does happen with the state pension and we continue with the triple lock even for a period of five to ten years with some volatility around those figures two and a half percent obviously being fixed but earnings and inflation differing we could see some real terms increases and the state pension could well come up to a a more compatible level with some of our our European peers. And you have to say that that in its purest form would be great news for people on the lowest incomes because their basic state pension would be a lot lot more meaningful than it currently is. The question comes back to your point, of course, is that, you know, at 100 billion a year or so and counting, it's a really significant expense and it's only getting bigger with changes like that. So whether or not future governments will continue to commit to the state pension, the most we've ever really had, so the triple lock, sorry, the most we've ever really had is commitments to from governments within their term of office and many of them really just committing year by year. But hopefully five or ten years would be enough with the triple lock to make a real difference, especially if we see this sort of volatility around earnings and inflation. That's a really interesting point. And if in in sort of real terms that state pension starts creeping up towards 11,000 a year or 12,000 a year, then it, it progressively lifts more and more of those lower earners out of poverty and retirement. So I'd be interested in your thoughts around this. I referenced that pension tax seminar. And Carl Emerson was quite interesting talking about possible reforms, I mean, at an academic level, he wasn't looking at it at a political level of how you deliver it, just looking at it and, you know, what what would good look like? He was talking about possible reforms to the pension tax system. It, it struck me for a while that, you know, we had the George Osborne review in 2015, 2016, that didn't really go anywhere apart from the lifetime ISA. Yeah, the industry kind of has to take more of a lead on this, that we're we're kind of living on borrowed time in not confronting the complexities and flaws in the pension tax system. And it is really hard to fix, and I'm not ignorant of that. And, uh, you know, finding the political capital to drive through changes will be hard. But every year that we carry on 
with the tens of billions of pounds of public money pouring into the tax relief system and all the inefficiencies and inequalities and distortions that exist in the system and the tapered annual allowance, the money purchase annual allowance, the problems the lifetime allowance is causing for the doctors and the pension death benefits and all the rest of it and all the money that's going into the higher earners while the lower earners don't really benefit from tax relief. You know, all this crazy stuff. You know, it feels like, yeah, politically it's difficult. So it's kind of, it's up to us as the industry to do the hard yards to, to, to effectively come up with a better answer and go back to government and say, look, you know, how about we do this instead? I think you're probably right. I, th- I mean, I think on balance, it will probably be something that is ultimately resolved, well, it has to be resolved by government and Treasury particularly. And it, it, to a degree, it's one of those few pensions issues that sits out with the remit of the minister, if you like. It sits within Treasury rather than DWP, as you know. And if I go back to the time that George Osborne launched a consultation, as you say, that gave rise to the lifetime ISA, but not not much more than that, and and you know, arguably political events overtook things. I think there there was an intention there to yeah. to make change, to make further change. Had had the coalition, you know, stayed in place, or well, rather, had the the government that followed the coalition <laughs> short for a very short period of time stayed in place prior to the to the Brexit vote. And, and, you know, to some extent, maybe the Lifetime ISA was that kind of Trojan horse to try and, you know, eke out a different system of retirement saving, um, particularly you know, starting with younger people, or people under 40 as it was. I think that was the kind of compromise position. The difficulty is, I mean, it's not just a, a sort of economic decision. It's not just a fiscal one. It's It's also a very political one and a lot of people's expectations are wrapped up around the existing system, the access to tax-free cash, the giving of tax relief at the marginal rate, and so on. And to some extent, most people will live with the complexity of, you know, tapered allowances and what have you in favour of keeping, you know, what, what's a pretty good system. If you go right back, though, this is it's essentially a system of deferred pay. Yeah. So the idea is that you, you know, you, you don't pay tax up front, but you do when you retire, and that's that's how it works. We can see all sorts of flaws in that now in terms of how it's working in practice. But the principle is a sound one. I think if you were starting from a blank sheet, which of course we're not, but if we were starting from a blank sheet, I think many people would come to some conclusion around giving more to people who earn less and giving more of an incentive to those people than people who earn more. And that might come through a flat rate of, of tax, which could then be adjustable. It could be quite a good economic lever to adjust the, the income and expenditure of the government. But we're not we're not starting from a blank sheet. And so it's almost, it's a little bit like the state pension, which of course we have made changes to, but not without difficulty. And you're left with an enormously long legacy of protected arrangements that people have in place in relation to the state pension Imagine that same complexity, you know, with with tax relief and the expectations and promises that people would be clinging on to for potentially decades, you know, even up to a century hence, which I think is is quite difficult. And to draw a line in the sand, of course, would be much more difficult because you'd have to think about what fairness looked like in that in terms of what people would save so far, what tax they might pay. It's really, really complex. So a lot of people have sought to look at it from a blank sheet and say, what would be a better tax system? And that answer is actually pretty straightforward. You can come up with a few different options as to how you would do it. 
but nobody's really tackled what a transition would look like. Mm. And I think that's the difficult bit. Yeah, if I wanted to get to there, I wouldn't start from here. Yeah. As the man said. Quite. No, no, all all good points. I'd still like to see, and I think the IFS is doing some of this work, I'd still like to see someone do the hard yards on this. I accept everything you say about the transition challenges and so on. But I think we can't carry on as we are. I think the the, the sums of money involved and the flaws in the system are just going to count against us. I think you're probably right, Tommy. One final word on this, I suppose, is what we've got to be careful of is the success of auto-enrolment is actually a bit of a complication in the conversation about tax relief because to a degree it is predicated, or to a large degree, auto-enrolment is predicated on the idea that it is right for the vast majority of people to save into a workplace pension. And really the only exceptions to that now are people who have already reached their limits in the main or one or two other niche scenarios but in the main everybody should be in a workplace pension if they can be and if you made changes to tax relief that made that questionable for any group Mm. that would otherwise be auto-enrolled then you start to undermine the very sort of foundation of automatic enrollment and I think that is a difficulty because nobody would want to do that in fact if anything we want to build on automatic enrollment which we've, we've talked about if you disenfranchised even the kind of higher earners or higher rate taxpayers, for example, in a way that, that questioned whether a workplace pension is the right thing for them to be auto-enrolled into, then you start to kind of heat up the glue that holds it together and run the risk that it, that it starts to dissolve. Interesting. Yeah, okay. So let's not fly too close to the sun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, fair point. Good one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's about 30 degrees outside at the moment for recording this, so, so it feels relevant. I live in Scotland, Tom. It's nothing oh, okay. like that. Okay. No, I have heard, I was talking to colleagues up there earlier on today, and they, they should be, they had possibly even got above 20 degrees up there today. It did. We had our whole summer over the course of Saturday and Sunday, <laughs> and that's it done. So let's talk just quickly about equity release, which you and I spoke about elsewhere recently. And in fact, I was on a call with the FCA earlier on today, and we touched on that. I'm... So I did this report on equity release earlier this year, and at the time I thought, okay, I felt like, look, we're missing a trick here. You know, you and I have talked about on this call about you know the, the impending shortfall in pension savings, and one day the DC pot will will we'll climb onto a hill in the distance where we have highly will be like Australia, where we've got big uh, big pots of DC money, and at the moment we're on a hilltop of DB money, but in between we've got to go down to the valley and come up the other side again, and you know, to me. Housing wealth is an obvious part of the solution for a lot of people. I think the FCA is still very wary about the mis-selling risks and the the wrong people being sold the wrong products and how equity release could be a, could still be a problem for them, which is fair enough. And I, I think I think they're right to be wary about that. At the same time, we're in a, heading into a cost of living crisis. DC asset values have fallen this year. I mean, the situation's already looking worse now than it was even a few months ago. And all those people who are in drawdown, who are pulling money out of their drawdown pots, are cashing in investments that are worth noticeably less than they were a year ago. And they're having to spend more money to live. To me, that just strengthens the imperative that, yeah, we should should be looking at how housing wealth can be part of the solution for these people. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think if you, there's an unassailable, premise at the heart of all this, which is we accept that for many decades, a number of people, a large proportion of of people will be undersaved in 
pension terms for their retirement. And if you also accept the fact that there is a large amount of equity held in people's homes, probably in the small trillions for those approaching retirement, one one or two trillion pounds worth, which is not far off the amount that people have saved in pensions. You take those two things together, undersaved on pensions, but money available to them, or wealth, if you like, available to them through housing equity, it seems sensible to look at housing equity as part of the solution. And I think we will quite quickly reach that conclusion in the years ahead, that, that it has to be part of the, the solution. The FCA is, is right to look at the past and, and see that there were significant problems in the earlier days of equity release in terms of how it was sold, the products that were manufactured, if you like, and how people were treated in that environment was not perfect by any stretch, and I think everybody acknowledges that. But it has come a long way since. As was set out in your report, Tom, there are a number of things that have changed over the years that put greater protections in place for people who look at equity release as an option. I think the market's come a long way. I still think it's got a way to go. Clearly, it's got a way to go in terms of its sort of size and scale. It's not. It's still a very small part of people's retirement provision, if you like. But perhaps more importantly, it's also slightly abstract in a way. It sits to the side of everything else. So, you know, the conversations around planning for retirement tend to revolve solely around pensions and people... Financial wealth, yeah. Financial wealth, yeah, rather than than housing equity, housing wealth. And, And that sits within the sort of the mortgage advice jurisdiction, if you like, Mm. with specialist advisors mainly who will actually go anywhere near equity release. Many advisors still won't touch it for historical reasons or simply because it's not part of their remit. They're not qualified or don't feel able to advise on it or or they don't feel it's appropriate to advise on it and they will pass that off to somebody who does. So it, it remains a slight aside to the conversation about wealth in later life. And I think we need to to bring that back into the to, to the mainstream somewhat. If nothing else, that in in doing that will help with the kind of regulation and standards and and consumer protections that you know perhaps still need to be improved upon as that market becomes more more available to people. So yes, I think it's a firm part of the landscape going forward, and I think it's difficult to argue against that because you know to do so is to ignore a clear element of of wealth in retirement, and many of which, of course, there are people, many people in the UK who rightly or wrongly will say, you know, my house is my pension. Hmm. And if people are still saying that, then we need to have a proper system that supports them (laughs) in making that a reality. So, yes, I I, I think it's a big part of the the future, but it's still got a way to go, and at the moment it's, it's quite fragmented. Interesting. Right. Look, Jamie, let's leave it there. It's been really good Good to talk to you. Uh, I really appreciate your time. It's been good to catch up. My colleague said I should ask you about billiards and we haven't even gone there yet. So do you still play? That is something of a void for the last three years. So I, my last match, my last competitive match was just before the pandemic kicked okay. off. And of course, all events were cancelled for a couple of years. I did pretty well on that. I think I got to the last 16 of a a national tournament and um, certainly top 50 in the world at that point. I hasten to add there are only about 350 
players who are, who are ranked. But oh, um, you should have just left it at the top fifty. You know, like, I, I, well, <laughs> probably not top fifty anymore because it has resumed, and I have I haven't resumed playing. So um, I'll get back to that. Maybe that's my retirement dream. Tom. Nice. All right, Jamie. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. And you. Bye, Tom. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.